Okay, we've been working our way through Ezekiel. Now next week uh, we do not have a class because next week is uh, costume carnival for small people. We have a carnival every year and that'll be next Tuesday night. Okay. So hard to imagine it's come along that way, but it has. So costume carnival next week. So there's no Bible study next week. That'll give us a couple more before we reach full holiday mode up to that point. So uh, no Bible study next week. If you want to come and see the entertainment, <laughs> it is a considerable entertainment. Uh, uh, I like to watch it. I wouldn't miss it. So it's a pretty happy uh, bunch of kids, and there's a crew of them. Last Friday night they had, what was this, Star Wars night? Man, hang on to your hat. That was pretty wild around here. So <laughs> I expect uh, next Tuesday night to be along the same lines. So a lot of happy kids will go home and eat lots of candy, and their parents will wonder why. So, But that's our prerogative once in a while to do that. We're going to do it as much as we can. Because <laughs> there's a time we need some joy in our lives, isn't it? Need something normal and something fun and get away from the insanity that seems to rule around us. Chapter 47 of the book of Ezekiel. We're coming towards the end of the book. And uh, there's Ben, if we could uh, cap off the book of Ezekiel, try to explain it. Uh, you'd start with God. That's where every good thing starts. Uh, started with God, and Ezekiel saw God, which was quite a thing to see. You remember that he was taken by the hair and taken off to Jerusalem, and he went to Jerusalem to see what was going on there, and then he saw God abandon the temple. God abandoned the temple. And he watched God as he came off the mercy seat off on the, on the uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant. He moved off the mercy seat, lifted himself up, came out of the Holy of Holies, hesitated in the courtyard, went by the gate, and then we saw him go up over the Mount of Olives and wait a little longer. Not like he wanted to go, but he had to go. And then he was gone, and God abandoned the temple. Last week, uh, as we saw kind of an unusual thing, he's taken back to the temple, and this time he's going along with who someone we think was Jesus, measuring the temple. And they're measuring everything. They're measuring the walls and the doors and the windows and uh, the altar. Anything that could be measured, they got a measuring stick and a line. And they're stretching the line out and measuring. And they're measuring the temple. And as they're watching, as he measures, God returns. And he sees God returning to the temple. And so... In the beginning, there's God. He sees God. And he sees God abandon the Jews and the temple. And now he goes back, sees God return, goes back onto the mercy seat in the temple. And so he's got a full 
view as he sees God, watches what he does, why he leaves, why he comes back. And so we were measuring last week, measuring, measuring, measuring over and over, chapter after chapter, with the idea that in the end, follow the pattern. There's a pattern that God has laid out how the church should be, how we should approach God. And he ends it with, now I told you, follow the pattern. And so we have a pattern laid out in the old tabernacle, starting way back with Moses in the wilderness, when people first started to move together as a group, or we'd call it a church in our day. Uh, with those people, it was a nation that got together, and organized into a religiously operated nation, nation under God, and stayed that way through the tabernacle and into the temple times. And they used the same pattern over and over again. You're going to go through the gate, entice you to come in. So we have the way the temple is laid out. Alright, and there's an open gate. This would be the east, which would be important. North and the south. And you come in through the gate. First thing you meet is the altar of sacrifice. And there's a dividing line in the holy place. There's a table with bread on it. And there's a lampstand down here candlestick, and then there's a little small altar there for burning incense. And in here is the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where God stays in that Holy of Holies resting on the Ark of the Covenant. And there's a pattern laid out. What are we supposed to do when we go to church? First you get yourself up and get there. <laughs> you go through the gate. You make a decision. I'm going. I'm going to where God is, where I'm going to meet God. And so it starts with a decision. Always does. You remember in Pilgrim's Progress, it started with a decision. First, we're going to go. All right? And we make that decision. I'm going to go. And so you go through the gate, through the entryway. First thing we deal with is our sin because that's in the way. It's a problem. We deal with our sin, ask God to help us. And then what do we do? We go in further towards God and we have the bread of life. I am the bread of life, Jesus said, and I am the light of the world. And so we have light come into our souls. Our souls feed on the bread of life and we pray. We offer incense and we pray and we get together with God. And that's how we approach God. That pattern has never changed. It remains the same way back from Moses' time till today you come to church and have those very same things in your mind. Exact same pattern. You're coming in as you decided to come in. You're going through the gate, made a decision. I'm going to church. I'm going to deal with my problem between God and I, whatever that might be. He's going to enlighten my mind. He's going to feed my soul, and I'm going to offer back prayer to him and worship, and there we will know that God is there. So that was the pattern that he had as he's measuring and measuring and measuring and measuring. What's the idea? Finally, God says, follow the pattern. 
When you measure, it's a pattern. Follow the pattern. So that's what brings us up to <coughs> where we are today. Uh, we're still measuring a little bit, still measuring a little bit. But then he comes to this chapter 47. And this is one of the highlights, I think, in the book of Ezekiel. We're still around this temple. We don't know. We say, well, what temple is it? And theologians have argued like they love to do. <laughs> They've argued for years. What temple was he measuring? We got all the measurements. We ought to be able to figure it out. But that's not the point of it. We showed last week that in heaven... There is no temple, no need of a temple there, because God is there, all right? You're with him. God has decided to live with us. No need of the temple when we get to heaven. The Bible specifically says there is no temple there. There's no need of those things. And so uh, what it is, is we saw a temple made without hands, is how the Bible describes it. In other words, it's not a building like we're in right now, like the temple was back then, like Moses' tent was. None of those uh, apply. Now it is a spiritual house. It's a spiritual house and God made it and uh, the altar of course is, was the cross of Christ in that spiritual house and the temple was God himself and God was in the holy of holies ripped open the curtain and invited us to come in and be close and so there's a whole new attitude that comes before the priest went in once a year, the Bible said because he was flawed. There was things wrong with him. One of them being he was going to die. And so the priest would come in, make his sacrifice year after year. Then the poor fellow get old and die. And he said, now we got a priest that never dies. And that's a wonderful thing. Our priest, now Jesus, the high priest, goes makes his sacrifice at the altar once for all. The Bible says once for all, never needed to make it again. It was a perfect sacrifice. He comes in to feed us and care for us. And then he is our priest as well as the sacrifice. All the things come together out of the pattern and they all become fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, 47, we're going to throw in something that nobody ever thought of before. And that, sure enough, that old Ezekiel, he's at it again, doing things that nobody else ever did. He's been measuring the temple, taking measurements now for about five, six chapters since 40. Now we're at 47. He's been doing all sorts of measuring and checking and all the rest of it. Now we come to 47. Here's something brand new. Chapter 47 of Ezekiel. Afterwards he brought me again to the, house, to the door of the house. And behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood towards the east. Waters came down from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. I put the instructions up there, north, south, and east, because uh, there's a reason. So, he says, I'm going to take you in to... And he notices that under these, under this wall, starting here, 
where God is, there's water coming through. And it's on the south side of the altar. So it comes through the path here by the south side of the altar. And it's going to go up to the gate. He's got a leaky faucet. We need a plumber. Where's this water? What's this water all about? Verse 2. And he brought me out of the way of the gate northward and led me about the way without to the utter gate by the way that looketh eastward. And behold, there ran out waters at the right side. So God says, come on, come here. I'm going to show you something. So he sees this water is leaking out, dribbling out sort of. From underneath the wall here, by the south side of the altar, he said, come on around here. And he takes him out the north gate and comes down here to the east gate, which would be the main entrance. And he sees the water coming out by the gate. So there's water coming out along the gate. And so nobody's ever seen anything like this before. It wasn't in any other temple. Matter of fact, Jerusalem is kind of a, a, a bad place to build a city. <laughs> Usually they build a city where there's water. You go across America with big cities there where there's water, right? And water is a main event. Help people to travel, help people to survive. Jerusalem, not so. There's a little spring in Jerusalem, Siloam. It runs down, and they carved a rock in the rock, a place where the water spring could come. And it kind of ran out of there and became a little brook down the bottom of the hills in Jerusalem. And the brook Kidron, which is the one that Jesus crossed the night that he went up to Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. And so it's a little, little, uh, uh, spring in Jerusalem, not enough to hardly survive on. They did their best to use it, but it wasn't much. So never was this a place where there was water. The little brook Kidron uh, ran to nowhere. Because once you get outside of Jerusalem a little bit, it's just a desert. So when that little brook was running down, which they walked over easily, you didn't need a bridge, you just walk over it. It went out into the dry parts and just disappeared into the ground. It's nothing. So Jerusalem's unusual city built without water. It's kind of unusual. <clears throat> but here we go. Verse 3. When the man that had a line in the hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits. All right. So now he's moving towards the east. And he's walking along the water, and he measures a thousand cubits. Well, it's probably a little more than a quarter mile. A thousand cubits. And so, come on, Ezekiel, we're going to measure, and they measure their way with a big stick, and they come to there. Let's see what happens. And he brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the ankles. And so, let's cross over here. He says to Ezekiel, and they cross the river and come over this side. And what was just water running along the top of the ground is now, you know, three or four inches deep. It's up to the ankles. 
He's got water. Now when he crosses over it, it's up to his ankles. You say, well, where'd that come from? <laughs> where did it come from? Well, let's see what else it says. Verse 4. Again he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the knees. So he goes another down, now he's a half mile down, and uh, he crosses over again, and he's up to his knees. The water's getting deeper. So how can the water be just a little bit coming out from under the wall and then it's up to your ankles and now it's a half mile away it's up to your knees they say well it must be running uphill <laughs> it's got to be running uphill and collecting no no it's all downhill let's go on verse 5 afterward he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass over or wait a minute, verse 4. Again he measured a thousand, brought me through, and the waters were to the loins. So he goes down again. Another, now he's at three-quarter mile mark. He goes down, and it's waist high. The waters become waist high. And he goes a full mile down now. He's a full mile down, and you can't walk. You can't go across it anymore. He said you can only swim in it. Very deep. So as it goes away from the temple, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper until now you can swim in it. So, how'd that happen? Verse 6. And he said unto the man, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Did you see that? Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. He brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. And when I returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and on the other. So now as you go along the river, all along, there's trees. Trees growing all along the river on both sides. And there are trees for fruit. Verse 8, and he said unto me, These waters issue far toward the east country, go down to the desert, and go to the sea. Which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. I'm back up to 7. When I returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on one side on the other. Then he said to me, These waters issue out towards the east country, go down into the desert, and go into the sea. Which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. As you come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, and they shall be healed, and everything shall live whither the river cometh. And it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from Engedi even to Engaleum. They shall be a place to spread forth nets, and their fish shall be according to their kinds, as the fish of the great sea, exceeding many. Watch this. And the miry places thereof, and the marshes thereof, shall not be healed. They shall be given to salt. Hmm. 
And by the river on the bank thereof, on this side and that side, shall grow all trees for meat, or things you can eat, fruit, whose leaf shall not fade. Neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. You can eat it, but it just keeps growing. Shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary. Fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf, therefore, for medicine. Now, let's stand back a minute and see what's going on. This river is moving out the eastern gate, just a little trickle, growing and growing and growing and growing and it's getting deeper and deeper and deeper as it flows downhill. Now if we could see a map, uh, if Jerusalem is there, this is the Mediterranean Sea. Over here we got the Sea of Galilee, it's one the famous one that Jesus walked on. And the Jordan River runs down to something called the Dead Sea. And so he says the waters are going to flow. And he walks for a mile with him down there. And now it's, it's so deep you can swim in. He says it's going to keep going. It's going to go run down the valley along and become where the Jordan River is. Join in. And then it'll go into the Dead Sea. This river is going to end up in the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is all salt. It's all salt. Now how did the Dead Sea get to be dead? Well, long, long time ago on the Dead Sea, there was a couple of places and people think, they were there. Some people think they were there. It doesn't matter too much where they were. And nobody can prove where they are, where they ever were. Because they had a fire. It wasn't no ordinary fire. The place was called Sodom. And the other one was called Gomorrah. They were known for every kind of filthy thing. And we still use the word sodomized today to represent what happened in Sodom. And you remember the story of Lot goes into Sodom, lives there. Angels come in and say, you got to get out of here. God's going to destroy this place. And so he leaves and his wife said, turn around and looked. Now it wasn't that she turned around just to see the fire come out of heaven. She turned around and said, I want to go back. And so God said, no, nah, you're not worth letting go either. And so she turned into a pillar of salt right there. And the ground is said in Sodom and Gomorrah was so thoroughly ruined that it became burned and burned and burned. It said God sent brimstone or some kind of sulfur fire down in it. And that entire area was just filled with what would be called salt. And so the salt filled the Dead Sea. So the reason the sea is dead is because it represents the judgment of God against the defiant attitude of mankind when they shook their fist in God's face and we'll do what we want. And he said, oh you will. Huh? Here we go. All right, and so Sodom and Gomorrah 
is burned to the ground. So the Dead Sea is a symbol of rebellion against God, and therefore it dies. Everything dies. To this day, now, the Dead Sea is dead. It's salt sea, nothing you can do to reclaim it, all right? Now, he tells Ezekiel this river is flowing and flowing and flowing and going to find its natural course and go into the Dead Sea and all of a sudden it's going to heal it. It's going to be teeming with all sorts of fish. And he says on one side was En Gedi right about somewhere in there was a place called En Gedi. En Gedi was a wild sort of country where David hid. When Saul was trying to kill him, he'd go to En Gedi. He could live down there. It was kind of lush country. There were springs in En Gedi, uh, and, uh, and things grew well in En Gedi. It was known for that. It was a wild place. So David hid in En Gedi. And he mentions the other city, which is a city in Moab, which is way on the opposite side. And so... The, the prophecy, he says to Ezekiel, is in En Gedi and all the way over on the other side in the city of Moab, they're going to be stretching nets and catching fish and so fast to make your head spin. That old Dead Sea is going to be filled with life. And on the way down where that river flows, there'll be trees and you can just go up and eat and eat. And he, 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 he. he said, don't worry about it. And even the leaves are good. You can take the leaves for healing as medicine. All right, the leaves are medicine. The fruit is for you to eat. And there's just tons and tons and tons of it. It's all for you. And so here is a life-giving stream. Now, is that actually going to happen? <laughs> I love these questions because you can't answer them. There's a thousand people that will answer that question. I don't dare answer it because I don't know. It might. Good chance it might even. But maybe not. Maybe this is just a message. That's what Ezekiel's been giving us, Right? He's been giving us messages. He's been telling us things. And we learn things from Ezekiel. The Valley of the Dry Bones. Were they actually there? Well, I'd say no. Those people were all standing up a great big army. I don't think they were there. I think it was a vision to teach Ezekiel what? Resurrection. God can resurrect. And we expanded that out and out and out to all its applications. Now we come to a river that keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And the question is, how does it get to be deeper? How does it get to be deeper? If any river that you or I know has a tributary, right? Some other river comes into it and it becomes a larger river. The Ohio comes into the Mississippi, uh, whatever. Rivers merge as they go towards the sea and they become larger that way. There's nothing merging in this river. It's just swelling and growing and growing and growing. Why? Why does it do that? Why is that river swelling and growing? Well, here's the answer. 
If you can answer this, you can answer that. Ready? How did Jesus feed 5,000 with five little dinner rolls and two dried fish? Do you think anybody saw that? He just looked like he was ripping the roll off. Everybody's trying to see, how did he do that? I don't know how he did it. How did he multiply the bread until he took one boy's lunch and fed 5,000 plus people and then had 12 baskets of leftovers? How did he do it? I don't know how he did it. People have written books on how he did it. Well, he must control matter. Well, I think that's pretty obvious that God controls matter and he's able to do things that nobody else can do. That's clear enough, all right? So why does the water grow? Because God's all about God. It's all about God. This river doesn't represent just water represents something much more than that that comes out from God. It's, that's why it starts way up in here. And he sees it, he says, I was by the door and it was coming out. Water is coming out from under the door. Now I have seen that. <laughs> I saw that here once. I went in the back and the water was coming out under the door. I thought, well, it can't be that much water. And so I went to turn on the heat, and it didn't come on. I opened the cellar door, and there was a lot of water. It all kept piling in there. Didn't look like much when it was running on the floor, but after two days, filled the entire basement. Furnace didn't come on because it was underwater. <laughs> so I seen water come out from under the door. <coughs> But not like that. Not like that. So how does, what's, what's it all about? Well, what did God send out that grew and grew and grew? It actually started right there, right in the temple. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, how does it go? They were all of one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. As if a rushing mighty wind filled the room. And the Spirit of God came down. And that's where it started, right there in Jerusalem. And so, sent from God is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit energizes the church of Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit begins and <clears throat> starts out kind of small. It's those few people gathered in the temple there, went there that day and preached. And uh, it started out kind of small, and then it started out to grow. And the Holy Spirit started to move 
and pretty soon there's a guy named Cornelius. Who's he? He's the first guy that's not Jewish to hear about Jesus dying on a cross for sins. He's the beginning of that, and he accepts that. And so now it's up to your ankles. It's just starting to go, see? What happens? Down the road a little bit, the apostle Paul has a dream. He says, in my dream, there's a man from Macedonia calling to me, come over here, help us. A man from Macedonia is Greece, and now it has moved into Greece. Now it's up to your knees. Right? It's coming up, right? It's at your ankles. Now it's coming up to your knees. And what happens? It goes on to Rome. And they fight it. They do everything they can to destroy it. But about 300 A.D., Constantine becomes the Roman Empire, takes over the city of Rome, and makes an announcement after he does, I am a Christian. Whoa, imagine that. And Rome becomes a center of Christian activity for several hundred years. Now you can swim in it. So it grows and grows and grows and gets deeper and deeper and deeper. The spirit is poured out more and more and more, and it grows and develops. All right? And so the church is growing like that. And God uses water here to represent, and in particular, the Dead Sea, which is a very symbol of rebellion against God. Why it's dead is because it was the seat of rebellion against God, and God said, I'm not going to have that. And so the Dead Sea today is a symbol of rebellion against God, and then it comes down into it, this life-giving stream, the world itself is energized and brought back to life through the flowing of the Spirit out in. So you think the Spirit, is, that's what the water is? You think that's what it is? Nod your head. Say, yeah, sure, sounds right. Eric, we don't think you're lying to us. All right, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, that's certainly representative of what's going on as the life-giving stream goes out and spreads its way across. But there's more than that. There's always a little more, isn't there? Isn't there always something else? Uh, let's look at John chapter 7. John chapter 7. This is a theme that keeps reoccurring in the Bible. John's Gospel, chapter 7. This was the last great day of the feast, and you, some of you remember that I preached on the pouring out of the water, which inspired Jesus in verse 37 of John 7. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And he that believeth me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. There's the rivers. There's the living water that brings life. But this he spake of the Spirit. There we go. 
They that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here it is. The Spirit is treated and explained like water. Water pouring out and getting deeper and deeper and growing more and more and more and more until you can swim in it. And Jesus uses the same sense. And so you have to think of yourself in the water. And you think of yourself in the water. And you think of yourself up to your ankles in the water. You know, we go down to the pond in the spring. Ankles is plenty good enough for me. Kids, when my kids were little, we got to go swimming on the 1st of May. Have at it. You get right on in there. Boy, jump right in. They did too. I don't know how they did it some days, but they got right in there and swam. And not, not me, I'm not going in there when the water was that cold. It might sticking up my ankles in there. Right? It gets a little warmer up to your knees. Right? You know what it's like to be in the water. Right? So uh, there's nothing except for the water itself. It helps you to feel what he's talking about. He says a lot of water pours out of your soul when you come to God and drink. And as you drink, it comes out of you, and it's a river flowing out of you for people to get into and to experience. And so the water from under the wall of the temple that grows and grows and develops certainly has a historical representation in the, the church and the pouring out of the spirit on Pentecost and that river swells and grows and grows and it's engulfed the whole world at this point, the entire world and the Bible says that the, the, that the world shall be filled with the knowledge of God like the waters cover the earth there's lots of knowledge of God that's come through this. But now we get down and make it a little bit more personal. You got to swim. Used to go to school, and where I went to school, they teach you how to swim in the shallow end. Go to shallow end. When you get grown up and you can swim, then they let you go in the deep end. And they ain't going to throw you in there first. You got to stay in the shallow end. So you learn how to swim, and then you take a little test. You can float. That's good enough. <laughs> You're in the deep end. You're getting in the deep end. Now, so it is with God. Uh, take a look at Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Starts out with water. Verse 1 As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He's hungry for God. He says, You're hungry, I'm thirsty. I thirst. 
before God. And so what happens as we go down a little bit? Verse 7. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. He says, we thought we were in deep water and we could hear the water spouts, the wind howling and drawing the water up. And it said, come a little deeper, if you will. Come a little deeper, if you will. Deep, call it the deep. So we get in the deep water and it said, like to be a little deeper. Let's go a little bit deeper. And they go in a little bit deeper until what? Oh, the water's rushing over your head. You had that feeling? Been on the beach, have you? Felt the water come rushing over your head, coming flowing in over you. Uh, there's a, a song in your book. If you've got a hymn book, grab one there. Psalm or song 165, written by the man who founded the Salvation Army. He's the one that made the Salvation Army go, William Booth. A great man. He wrote this hymn. 165, O boundless salvation. Listen to it now. O boundless salvation, deep ocean of love. O fullness of mercy, Christ brought from above. The whole world redeeming, so rich and so free, now flowing for all men. Come roll over me. My sins, they are many. Their stains are so deep and bitter, the tears of remorse that I weep. But weeping is useless, thou great crimson sea. Thy waters can cleanse me. Thy waters can cleanse me. Come roll over me. Well, he's asking, come on, let that water, let that wave just come right over me. And this is the best verse. Tide now is flowing, I'm touching the wave. I love that verse. Here comes a big old wave. <laughs> I stick my hand in that wave. Get your hand in that wave. Tide now is flowing. I hear the loud call of the mighty to save. My face growing bolder, delivered I'll be. I plunge beneath the water and they roll over me. He says, I, I, I can't get enough. When I get a real taste of what's coming, I dive into the water. Now, hallelujah, the rest of my days shall gladly be spent in promoting his praise, who opened his bosom to pour out this sea of boundless salvation for you and for me. So there's a boundless possibility in the river flowing from the throne of God. Pouring out of God is a fountain and a stream that gets deeper and deeper until you can swim in it. There's more and more and more. And he says, man, I want that water to just come rushing over me. I want to be completely engulfed in it. And hallelujah, the rest of my days, it will be wonderful to do that. And so the Christian life can be described like swimming. Okay. Like swimming in a river. You just want to 
play around, dabble around, you can go up to your ankles. You'll still be in the river, but only up to your ankles. You get a little bit more courageous, get up to your knees, then you get up to your waist. Every time my wife and I go swimming down there, we get up to our waist and we stop. Is that good enough? We know it's not, but stop thinking. Maybe this will cool us off. No, we know. We know it's not enough. It's not enough. You stop. So you get up to your waist and you think, well, this Christian life is okay. Come on. Let's go. Let's get in and swim. Commit yourself into the water. Get off the ground and get where you got to swim. Commit yourself into the water. Dive in. Come on, let's go. Let's get it together and let's get going. Now, there's an old hymn in the book you've never heard of before. When I was a kid, we used to sing this all the time. It's page 259. I doubt that any of you has ever heard it. Maybe Pat might have heard it a long time ago. Mercy of God is an ocean divine. A boundless and fathomless flood. Launch out to the deep. Cut away the shoreline. And be lost in the mercy of God. Launch out into the deep. Let the shoreline go. Launch out. Launch out to the ocean divine out where the full tides flow. But many, alas, only stand on the shore and gaze at the ocean so wide. They never have ventured its depths to explore or be launched in the fathomless tide. So here's this river getting deeper and deeper and farther and farther it grows until... Instead of just a little trickle under the door, you said you could swim in it. How you can swim in it? That's God. And he says, get away from the shore and come in. I'm inviting you to come in and swim in it and just be entirely engulfed in it. That's when it, you can feel where it's all God. It's all God's. Not you standing on your own feet anymore. At some point, you've got to get past standing on your own feet and throw in and say, it's, it's me and God. I'm going to trust him with my life by reaching out into the deep and being in where the water gets deep. All right? So it's a call for us to quit mucking around on the shore. Now, one little thing, Ezekiel said, there's a few places where the water wouldn't go, where there would still be miry clay and salt along the edges of the Dead Sea. So he said, this sea, this, this water will rush into the Dead Sea, it will entirely change the whole nature of the Dead Sea It'll be full of teeming with life. They'll be fishing from shore to shore. There's a few places on the side where there's still salt. 
I wonder what that is. Wouldn't you think that it would cover everything? Is there some place of rebellion that remains? Is that what it might be? That's an interesting question. Because I don't have the answer. Salt represents rebellion in the Dead Sea. And you say, well, you mean that this sweeping tide didn't get everything? Unfortunately, no, it didn't get everything. There are still pockets of rebellion. Is it going to be that way forever? That's one question. The other thought is, which is a very interesting one, because this is Ezekiel, and because he is a priest, right? Ezekiel is a priest. He says, well, we're going to fill the Dead Sea with fresh water and we're going to get rid of all that and all that will be gone. When they needed salt, they got it out of the Dead Sea. That's where they got their salt supply, out of the Dead Sea. They say, well, if they're eating fruit, they don't need salt anymore, right? (laughs) But see, for Ezekiel... Salt was used in the sacrifices. There's a lot of sacrifices when they sacrifice bread. Called it a meat offering. It was actually bread. They make up bread. They put salt on it. It was part of the sacrifice. And uh, it had a preserving nature in it. Remember Jesus said, you are the what of the earth? Salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. So salt has value, and it was used in the sacrifices. And Ezekiel says, how are we going to make our proper sacrifice without salt? God said, there'll be plenty for you. There'll be plenty. If there's some in a little marsh there, there'll be plenty for you. Which is it? Is it a little pocket of rebellion, or is it the salt that Ezekiel was worried about? I think he paid attention to the salt because he knew that the Dead Sea was their place where they got all their salt and at that time it preserved everything they had there's no refrigerators right can't plug in the refridge okay this is so they needed salt he was concerned about that but salt was part of the sacrifices and he's thinking if we follow the pattern we're going to have to have some salt god said don't worry there's some salt there There'll be some left for you. You'll be okay. But the question is, as we talk about water going deeper and deeper, and you're going to commit yourself into the water and get off of the shore, like he says in the song, uh, cut away the shoreline. Get out there and, and commit yourself into God's hand. Launch out to the deep. Let the shoreline go. All right, now I'm going to throw everything in a mess. Ready? Let's make you so confused you'll never figure it out. Revelation chapter 22. Chapter 21 starts out, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. All right, now chapter 22. Watch this. And he, God, showed me, John, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's where this one came from. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Sound familiar? Sounds just like Ezekiel's river, doesn't it? Ezekiel gives us a little more color than that, but I think that's real. I think there is going to be a river in the new world that God creates and there's going to be trees along the river continually bearing fruit 12 months of the year and the leaves are for the healing. So maybe Ezekiel's not so far off. Maybe in Jerusalem the one that comes out of heaven will be a river flowing right out from the throne of God. Maybe it's not a dream. Maybe he saw something was actually going to happen. If he did, and he gave us a wonderful point of view as the life goes rushing into the Dead Sea, and that which has been the symbol of the rebellion of mankind in the new world that God creates. There is no rebellion. It's gone. No more people defying God. No more people shaking their fists and saying, I don't want it. Everybody wants to get in the deep water and swim. Let's go. Let's all get in the deep water and swim. So, I think... When that's when I say, is Ezekiel's vision real or not? I don't know. I can't answer that. It sure sounds like something just like that is going to happen in the new heaven and the new earth. And Ezekiel gave us the most insightful look at the river and what it did as he measured and waited and measured and waited. And then finally he went swimming. <laughs> Let's go swim. Let's get in and go. God's growing mercy and growing grace and the growing, swelling, expanding love of God is sweeping all around us and you can just swim in it. There's that old hymn in the book. Uh, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, flowing like a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to my glorious rest above. There you go. That's how you want to go to heaven. Swept up in the love of God and drawn right up to heaven. Is that good enough for you? That's plenty good enough for me. I'm happy to go that way. Swept up in the currents of the love of God. Vast, unmeasured, he says, boundless and free. So Ezekiel gave us a pretty good passage here, didn't he? Close us up. Gave us something to think about. 
and he entices us. Come on, in the deep. Get off the shore. He said, yeah, you can stay us up to your ankles, but come on, let's go deeper. Will you come with me in the deep water and swim? That's a good way for Ezekiel to end us up. We may go back, pick up a couple things more after next week. Next week, though, is uh, Costume Carnival Kids Night. Thank you very much. <laughs>